Hi there. How's it going? I have two things to say to you. One, I'm very excited about this episode. And two, everything is so much. Everything is a lot. (laughs) Do you ever... Yes? Do you ever get fucked so good that you're productive for like three days afterwards? Because that's where I am right now. (laughs) Okay. I've done everything. I've replaced lights. I've picked up new license plates. I've cleaned. I've cooked. I've done the shopping for the week. I've done uh, these small errands and bits and bobs, and I've reorganized my life, and I've sent some emails, and I've done all this stuff, and I'm over here just like, damn, Steph. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of me. It's crazy. (laughs) I don't know how we got here, but here we are. All I had to do today was write an address on uh, an envelope. And <laughs> I went put- on a four-mile hike today! I've done a lot of weird shit! <laughs> uh, That's impressive. No, it's exhausting. <laughs> uh, do you know what I miss, Elena? Being able to go on walks and hang out with you and get ice cream. Oh, I miss that too. That's what I've been craving. It's just a walk downtown and find you over the bridge. Oh, it's so nice. <laughs> a flooded bridge. I'm so glad that you're okay. <laughs> yes, everyone is okay. Thankfully. Thankfully. It's all I can ask for. Yeah. The Netherlands just being so flat, you know, you just, you get worried. Well, uh, <laughs> where, where I live, it's above sea level, so. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> Barely, but still. <laughs> we have hills. Tiny. Yes. They call them mountains, which is ridiculous. <laughs> which is very funny, considering you know what a mountain looks like. <laughs> you are a mountain girl. Yeah. Yeah. I am a mountain girl. And you'll girl. be there soon. I'm so excited yes. for you. Home sweet home. I'm counting the days. We're going to have to do another Georgian episode to uh, to commemorate. We can do something folky. Ooh. Something heritage-related. Because we've got a lot of those. Like I bet you do. Three sites were just added to the UNESCO World Heritage List from Georgia. Hell yeah. Yeah. So it's piling up. <laughs> we have a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to. Yeah. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Elena. And this is Bet You Wish This Was an Art Podcast. Mm-hmm. And we are <laughs> today talking about an artist, actually. <laughs> actually, today today it is more of an art podcast than it's been in a minute now. Yeah. Which I think is brave, sexy, and cool of us to do. And rare as well. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get used to it. Don't, Don't get, get it twisted. It. No, no. No, no. We're still chaotic we are- AF, so... <laughs> And much like chaotic intros, um, today we are talking about a chaotic life, a artist that inspires and excites and confuses and upsets and like becomes a talking point for what is, what is this balance between legend and artist? What is this where the, the title, the name, the man, is more recognizable than the icons and the symbols, or just as famous as the icons and symbols that he uses. Yeah. Today we are talking about the one, the only, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Ah, what a, what a life. What a guy. What a life. What a short, painful, beautiful, terrifying, exciting. I just... Yeah. We're talking about an artist who, in like, despite being technically relatively recent, right? Uh, the 80s mm-hmm. is when he's making the biggest breath of his work. He has paintings, like a 1982 painting, an untitled painting that sold for $110.5 million, yep. which at the time made him the most uh, profitable American artist. Yeah, the one that had. Yeah. The most expensive. The most expensive American artist, and he was also number six on the most expensive paintings ever sold. And this is a boy who was homeless 
in his early teenage years. Like, the leap that he was able to accomplish. And obviously, your work is worth more when you're dead. Yeah, but his work was worth a lot when he was alive as well. Sold his first painting for, what, $400? Something like that? Well, he sold out his entire exhibition for, like, 200000 Basquiat is a really great example of being recognized relatively early and being and having the foresight and the talent and the what's it called the like he has the gift of sale as well as the gift of gab and the gift of creating um Basquiat is a man of many talents and many abilities and I think that's part of the reason why he's so legendary not that you know Nobody could do what he does, or did, but I think because he had this perfect storm and used it to his advantage, and we'll get into, like, you know, his his own adversary was himself at the end of the day, but I think there's there's so much that he was able to fight against and to use and to conquer and to overwhelm, and I'm just, shush, I just, because <laughs> I'm not, like, the style of work that we'll get into, I'm not necessarily, like, not not into, but, like, it's so abstract, and it's so expressionistic, and it's mm-hmm. so intense. It is. But that's, like, that's the bit. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, ugh, ugh. It's a combination of, like, graffiti art, uh, neo-expressionism, and a bit of pop art as well. It's a lot of things at the same time. You know what it feels like? It feels like Paris at the peak 1900s. Yeah. 1980s New York is 1900s Paris. I mean, this is the time when, like, really big names are rising up, or, like, Andy Warhol, which we will talk about in a bit, Keith Uh, Haring, all these names that, um... Carol, like it just there's there's so much that this time frame possesses. New York earns its money, you know. New York, <laughs> New York did it. <laughs> yes, but before we get into that, let's talk about his childhood, please. Jean Michel Basquiat uh, was born in Brooklyn, New York, and his father was from Haiti. And his mother was born in Brooklyn, but of uh, Puerto Rican uh, parents. He had an older brother who died before he was born, and he had two younger sisters. And essentially, he was introduced to art at a very young age, as it usually goes. His mother was very into art, and she kind of took him along to different exhibitions, to MoMA, to to Met, and all of these really big museums. At some point, she even enrolled him in the Brooklyn Museum of Art. He was a junior member. And yeah, he was very into drawing like these comics of uh, characters that he liked, and uh, Matilda, his mom, was also very supportive of that. She was also a bit of an artist as well. <laughs> I love um, it so much. I love supportive parents. We don't yes. get a lot of supportive parents on this on this podcast. Yes. And every time, and, you know, family life aside, the fact that his mom was like, you can do anything. And not in the same way that, like, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright's mom said, you're going to be an architect and then locked him in a room yeah. <laughs> with paintings of architecture. Very, (laughs) yeah, great idea, bad execution. (laughs) Yeah. In some accounts, Matilda was very, like, supportive, very encouraging of John's artistic development. But then in other accounts, she's also, she's also very erratic in a sense that she had a lot of mental health issues. After divorcing from uh, Jean's dad gerard she fluctuated in between like mental mental health institutions uh and psychiatric hospitals and she was like for the rest of her life essentially in and out of these institutions there are conflicting accounts of maybe she was abusive uh same for 
Jean's dad, who uh, there's a story about him beating Jean to the point where the next day Jean had to go to school with a walking cane. However, Gerard denies this, and we don't really have like solid proof for that, so take it with a grain of salt. It might have actually never happened. It's, um, it's definitely the tale of like parents who are volatile and unhinged in yeah. different ways and abusive in different ways. And regardless, I think there was a lot of pain, and then there was a lot of on top of Basquiat, like, Jean being the type of kid who's already naturally curious, I think there also had to be a level of independence that you see a lot of as he progresses, right? Because he has moments of rebellion, which a is lot of moments, actually. Well, <laughs> he, you might define him by his rebellious yeah. nature, but I think there's, it's taking those already normal teenage angst feelings and then when you put it under the microscope of volatile parents who kind of leave you to do your own thing, or when they do engage with you, it's either extremely loving and supporting or extremely violent and dangerous. Yeah. It, it starts to form these really anxious attachment points where stability then feels weird, but also human nature to preserve and protect and like define itself kind of turn Jean into a, a hustler of sorts like someone who knows what he has to do and does it and not only that but like he was naturally gifted and I hate to use the word gifted I do hate yeah. to he's not he's not necessarily special this isn't a genius da -da 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 -da. We don't believe but in genius here. We don't believe in the genius here. And while Basquiat, like, Jean is a really exceptional artist and a really exceptional human, the, we're not going to do the expert thing. We're not going to do the master. <laughs> we're not going to do the genius. But he has a lot of similarities to one of our favorite artists here on the show, uh, Frida Kahlo, where plagued by a, a bad accident, <laughs> let's say. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he did have he did have a car accident when he was seven years old, and he suffered many internal injuries as well as like a broken arm, and he eventually had to have his spleen removed. Crazy. Um, and while he was hospitalized, his mother gave uh, him a copy of Grey's Anatomy, which is a big book of anatomy and biology, essentially. Yeah, it's a it's a doctor's. Handbook, essentially. Yeah, yeah, essentially. Not the not the hit two thousands TV show. <laughs> Indeed, as long as that has been going on, it's not as far as the eighties. It doesn't go as far as the <laughs> as the seventies. Surprise! The show surprise. might be eternal, but it's not that old. <laughs> yes, but but the book that you know the show is based on was given to the seven year old. Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Great the seven -year -old. gift. Um, but I think there's um it's it's mentioned on and off, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, but Basquiat has a really strong cultural heritage um to his Haitian roots and to his Puerto Rican roots. And I mean New York, especially Brooklyn at the time, is this melting pot and does have all of these different cultures and different influences. And so the young mind of this boy is absorbing not only cultural iconography, but also with this really intense scholarly literature of the human body and the anatomies and being able to break down what he's seeing. I mean, this is the boy that taught himself how to read and write by four or five years old. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he also was fluent in three languages by 11. Yeah, but I mean, his father spoke French, his mother spoke Spanish, and he spoke English, so. Makes sense. But it's also very impressive. As someone who is also multilingual. <laughs> <laughs> yes. As, as others who are multilingual, as we, as we have uh, a couple of languages under our belt. We do. We do. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting because, like, you can see not only is he smart but he wants to actively learn and it's not a matter of a bored kid it's it's someone who is compelled to learn more it's somebody who 
needs to know and wants to know and will seek out any opportunity to know, which speaks more to his curiosity than to his brilliance. But, you know, he, he has an ability to take it all, absorb it, and then return it to the world. And you see that a lot in the development of his art. He is someone who is very driven and who is ambitious and is willing to do the work to get there. Even though he is very curious and he loves learning, he was never good at school in the sense of he didn't like school at all. He was frequently transferring schools and he uh, at the at, at the time he was also running away from home now and then <laughs> at, le- at least two times he ran away from home before yeah. he was 17 when he left home for good and i mean you know it would be it'd be tough because he would go and he'd couch surf or he would try to earn his way and and he's doing this by selling postcards and by taking interest in quick cash schemes and and being able to kind of support himself when he knows that he's the only person he can rely on, essentially. Yeah. Because by 15, his mother is fully committed to an institution, right? Yeah. We don't exactly know when that happens. Yeah. It's it's in his early... It's when he starts running away in earnest. Yeah. I think his mother is committed. And so that means that he and his siblings are now under his father. Yeah. Which he does not have a good relationship with. Although he always wanted his father's approval. (laughs) (laughs) He really did. He He just wanted he just wanted his dad to to support him. Yeah. Eventually he did kind of get enrolled into the school called called uh City As School progressive it was a progressive school in manhattan where they essentially had this kind of study system where it was kind of like work study internships were accepted as credit it it was designed for people who can't handle like regular schooling and which you know we know that different people need different approaches and this could be a very successful method yeah indeed he met a lot of artists there as well people who were on the same page as him for example al diaz um, yes and he and al and several other people started this journal and then from there al and uh jean kind of broke off and made this personality essentially uh of this person with a the pseudonym samo samo um which stands for same old shit. That's <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um, yeah. And the Samo project kind of defines them for a little bit because this is like late 70s. Yes. And they're in New York and tagging and spray painting. One of these days, and I'm saying this as an aside, but one of these days, you and I are going to attempt to talk about the evolution of spray painting and graffiti art and like tagging That'll because be it is extremely fascinating to me. It is. But I want to do it without talking about, like, Banksy. <laughs> we'll, we'll find a way around him. <laughs> mention that he exists and move on. <laughs> and move on. <laughs> Exit through the gift shop and keep walking. Yep. It's, um, because, because spray painting as a medium becomes one of the very defining factors for this period. And obviously... 70s, 80s, this is the period of grunge, this is the period of punk, and and you're following the same footsteps of the avant-garde, but instead of, like, raging against the academy, you're raging against the machine, and your your tools are no longer publications, or it's, it's, it's the same concepts, it's the same different materials, but now you have the ability with spray paint to, to make your mark on a part of the world that normally wouldn't inter like interact with you, if that makes sense. Um, it's no longer the Salon du Refusé. It's now a sidewalk street or a brownstone side alleyway. And the text space graffiti says as much about you as anything that's figural. It's 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 defining yourself and it's defining a movement and it's defining like 
Like, that's essentially what the SAMO project is, or the SAMO, because your SAMO, same old, yeah. The SAMO project becomes, like, a theme and a recurring theme. And, yeah, it's it's largely text-based. Um, like, there'd be these uh, kind of, like, slogans. Yeah. <laughs> where, well, specifically, like, SAMO for the so-called avant-garde, or yeah. SAMO as an end to playing art. And, and I, I don't I I'm intimidated and fascinated by graffiti art. It is indeed fascinating. I understand the compulsion. I just <coughs> there's a specific type of artist that loves graffiti art, that loves to create or there's a there's a certain kind of artist that loves a statement like that. Yeah. Cause it can be in your face. It is made to be in your face indeed. But I think Sean was Someone who liked to get up in your face in that way. Well, you know, you're you're surrounded by all of this wealth and all of this power and all of this nobility and all of this, like, gaudiness. And you're expected to just kind of, like, sit there and be quiet and accept your place in life. We'll get into it later, but I think that's kind of a huge statement he was doing with his suits. You yeah. know, and he was wearing Armani for, for, for the first time, and it's just like... Damn, son. <laughs> in, in, the, in the beginning, when he showed himself as Samo, and he came out on like shows, shows to present himself as Samo, he does adopt this kind of personality. Mm-hmm. And he does then explain that Samo was designed as, quote, a tool for mocking bogusness. So good. <laughs> and he kind of shaves his head. In a very weird way. <laughs> like there's... <laughs> on the top, it's like shaven completely. And then there's like around, there's a little bit of hair. And in the middle, there's like a line of hair as well. <laughs> well, he, but it's it's very reminiscent of Franciscan uh, monks, you know? Yeah, he, he said that he did it because he wanted to be in disguise. <laughs> And he, he's just very, he's very artsy and he's very creative and this like weird young 18 year old who's like, who knows what he wants and is not afraid to. to and he's not afraid. Yeah. That's exactly right. He's not afraid to get it. Yeah. He's not afraid to run up to you on the street and be like, hey, buy my work. <laughs> <laughs> buy my postcard. <laughs> buy my t-shirt. <laughs> Allegedly, he also went up to Warhol that first, the first time that he met. This is an alleged story, but uh-huh. the first time that they met was when he was selling his uh, postcards and he sold one to Warhol. So yeah, he was very driven. <laughs> he really was. And, and you know, like, I, like I said, he had to be a hustler. He wanted to support himself. He yeah. knew that he, was intended for other things. And I mean, you know, when he got kicked out of school <laughs> for pieing the principal. Yeah. <laughs> that, that that good old fashioned, I have to show you a video. We did that the other day, the other day, months ago now at this point, to our supervisors at work. But oh. um, they did that, that good old fashioned trick of filling a pie tin with, with shaving cream. Yeah. And he just, on a dare, allegedly it was a dare. Yeah. I don't know if I believe that. <laughs> but he straight up pied the principal. He did. He, he <laughs> did that and got expelled. And got expelled. I mean, this was also the time when he leaves home. And he kind of becomes partially homeless, couch surfing, then staying at girlfriends' houses, moving in with different girlfriends. In um, in today's time, we would just call that backpacking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And also we would call selling uh, postcards and t-shirts on the street just entrepreneuring. That's right. That's right. If, yeah, he was his own. He was an independent business owner. He Small would definitely shops. have an Etsy or a, a Patreon. Oh, I think hardcore a Patreon. I don't think he has the patience for Etsy. That's fair. <laughs> That, no one there's does. A, there's a lot of marketing, but he would be he would be on Instagram, and he'd <laughs> he be would. he'd be both very good and very bad at it. Yeah, <laughs> he would post like 
once a month, but that post would get like a billion likes. Yeah, and they'd be all weird, and there'd be no theme, yeah. and then you'd get sporadic. It just, and his Twitter, oh my god, his Twitter would be poetry. <laughs> it was. Illegible poetry. <laughs> Completely illegible. He he just one day, like, uh, tweet out car, and everyone would be like, wow, he tweeted out car. <laughs> and you see all of the symbols. Same-o as an alternative to God. <laughs> <Yes>. Tweet. <laughs> And then he would delete his Twitter and everyone would be like, what the fuck? It'd be great. It would be amazing. Aspire to be like Basquiat in your social media. Yeah. I love him. Um, but, you know, he's young and he's experimental. And, and while he never formally goes to art school, he is surrounded by art. And he's surrounded by innovation and progress and change. And we talked about this in our AIDS epidemic, but like in our AIDS epidemic episode, but like you have a lot of artists creating a lot of very public and very dramatic pieces. And so not only do you start to see the rise of that, but also you start to see like the village voice and what's Soho and how do you develop and determine and identify yourself? And this is the same era of like Jeff Koons and Keith Haring and uh, I mean, obviously Warhol, but there, there's just, there's so much going on. And we're talking about your, your YBAs, your young British artists. You're talking about your neo pop. You're talking about your neo expressionism. We're talking about post expressionism. We're talking about like postmodern. It's, it's, it's creative and it's weird and there's access and this is the 80s. There's music and there's, there's thought and there's rebellion and there's, there's a lot happening. <laughs> there's a lot. And you're fighting against a very, per- a very conservative, um, mainstream. Very white mainstream. That's, that's another huge thing that plays into this. Not only is Basquiat a very young artist, from a very troubled background, but to be a young black artist in America, to be a young black man in America now is nearly impossible. And I mean, Basquiat was not just an graffiti artist. He does move into studio art and he does create a band later. He's, he's experimenting and exploring and he's creating. Um, but you, you see that like different mediums still relate against this constant rebellion and identity crisis while also being firmly comfortable with his roots. Yeah. He wanted to be more than he was because he knew himself to be more than he was. He was never afraid to to take a uh, step forward. That's kind of where he was at. He always sought for something new and sought for new experiences. At this time when he didn't have a home yet or a studio or anything, he would live at a different, like uh, we said, apartments of girlfriends or friends. Um, And he would use things he found in the street for his canvases. Uh, He used the walls of the apartment, the floors of the apartment he was staying at. He used doors that he found on the street to paint on glass, etc. He didn't have money for canvases, therefore he used anything he could get. He also started to cross out words to draw attention to them. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of crossed out words in his works, and now that you know, pay attention to those. He 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 was finding his style. His first stable home, like his first stable roommate, was was with Alexis Alder in uh, 1979, and you can kind of see this development, this this need to find the symbols that would define him. And I think he found them relatively quickly. He did find them quickly, but he didn't have long to kind of explore <laughs> and develop other symbols as well. So sad, 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 sad. Um... I I will also say he he got bored of things relatively quickly. Indeed, um, yeah. By 1980, well, 
hell, yeah, by 1980, he was over the same O project. And he and Al had a falling out. Yeah. And while the specifics of it aren't necessarily known, it was probably a creative difference that got heated and out of control. And uh, in true teenage angst fashion, when Samo broke up, when the Samo project disbanded, uh, Jean inscribed, Samo is dead on the walls of Soho buildings. Dramatic bitch. What a dramatic bitch. I love it. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's so good. He, like, he does a lot. He um, does a lot. And in the he first. He does so much. In the first two years that he starts, like, actually making art for a living, he skyrockets at, like, amazing speed to amazing fame. Mm-hmm. Well, he understood. He understood that he had to be an an influencer. He understood he had to be like yes, as much of the art as his own work, and he was good at it. And to be fair, he had a lot of good role models for it, but he was very good at it. He, he was, was good at branding, Elena. He was. He was wonderful at branding. <laughs> well, he started exhibiting at a few exhibitions. One of them was the New York New Wave show at MoMA PS One. And it was this nonprofit art space, uh, housed in this defunct elementary school. And there were 100 artists being exhibited in this exhibition, but he was the only one who was given like prominent space for paintings and like a whole yeah. wall. And he showed more than 20 of his works on this wall. This was also the time when he was kind of discovered slash recommended to this art dealer called Anina Nose, and she kind of took him under her wing in the sense of she invested in him. She gave him space under, like, in the basement of her gallery to work, and she gave him, like, paints and provided him with assistance. Well, it was a studio, you know? He, yeah, He yeah. finally got this, like, artist-in-residency that exactly. he was seeking that he hadn't. And I think Nose is one of those, one of those, like, legendary dealers and art collectors who, like, has an eye for rising talent. Yeah. And I think that's part of, like, an art dealer's responsibilities if you were to ask me what an art dealer's responsibilities ought to be um there's something about supporting promoting and highlighting these these youthful talents that have a whole world to pursue and 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 jean was so hungry to to perform and to do well and to take this opportunity it's not just that Anina was like, oh, come, come stay in my studio. Uh, come use my basement as a studio. It'll be great. He treated it like a job. He, he showed up like <laughs> on time with croissants or if he was late, he apologized for it. And, uh, yeah, he, a lot of people had like criticisms, uh, at the time. And uh-huh. I mean, s- still maybe that this white woman was keeping a black ward in her basement. <laughs> To create um, to art. turn out yeah. paintings on command, but Basquiat himself said that quote this uh that was a nasty edge to it, you know, I was never locked anywhere if I was white, they would just say artist in residence end quote, and that yeah, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, the audacity of the people who were saying that as well is kind of funny. Because mm. these are the critic, the art critics, the white art critics who are saying this, and they're the ones who are highly racist. Yes, aggressively so. <laughs> these are the same critics that then call Basquiat's work primitive, yeah, <clears throat> or raw, or you know, experimental. And it's like, fuck you. Um, there were some critics who would even go so far as to say that he was just. A, that he was talentless and that he was uh, taking advantage of his art dealer and was uh, like ignorant type things. And it's just like, and you have the audacity. 
to look at the people who are willing to help him and to look at the people who are like taking an active interest and to try to ruin their reputations fuck off yeah (laughs) he he exists in that duality he exists in that dichotomy of i am incredible i am talented i have abilities and i live in a society that will not recognize me for more than just a token therefore i will become a token so that i can make money yeah and since this is also New York in the 80s, so that I can do drugs. But you know what? Fair. Comes with it, <laughs> kind of. I mean, my mom was also in the in New York in the 80s. She, she'll tell you the same damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> Did she meet Sean? I don't think so. You know, she... I have to talk to my mom about New York in the 80s. Because she only Shit. talks about, like, because they she started dating my dad in, like, 85? 86? No, maybe maybe 85. And then they lived in New York for uh, five, seven years. And so, like, that's an, an intense time to be in New York City. Yeah. <laughs> and to be working for a Spanish company. So it was, you know, there's... I have to talk to my mom about that. <laughs> Put should. a pin in that. I'm going to do an interview. I'm going to interview my mom. <laughs> you should. Let's bring mom, her on. Mom, what does it like to be a chef? Let's bring her on. <laughs> Vic Chap, let's do it. Oh, my God. Could you imagine? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Damn. Okay. Maybe. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. <laughs> that would be fun. Oh, you have to interview your mom then, because she's cool. She's, your mom's really cool. She's cool, yeah. She she talks full. I know, I know, I know. My mom would want to do it in Spanish. Mm. <laughs> Hola. Como estas? Any nineteen eighties New York. Yes. Where you get tipped in cocaine. Like just casual. Basquiat had his first group show at Nase's Gallery in eighty October of nineteen eighty one. And she mm-hmm. uh he gave her six paintings to hang and they were all sold. And he he she 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 was kind of ready to make another proposal to him. She offered him a loft to live in, a studio to paint in, assistants to work for him, supplies, uh, and collectors to buy his art. She was completely investing in him. And this is fine, but eventually she does kind of do too much. We'll get into it. I think, I yeah, I think there's there's that unfortunate balance of, like, he goes from having to take care of everything himself to now being taken care of. It's more of he did things for himself before. He sure did it for the market as well and for uh, the fame and for for selling. But uh, he did it on his own terms. And now he is kind of under this timer of uh, do this now so you can turn out this much work so we can do this and there's like management well, because, over him and because Anina was so focused on like the big picture of exactly. art right because you're you're so tapped into because so think of it from like the individual to the company right uh, yeah exactly Basquiat as the artist as the individual goes I create this many pieces and I express myself in this many ways and I require X amount of days to like to process, to absorb, to create, to feel comfortable, to present. I mean, and yeah. Whereas Anina isn't focusing in on the actual creation process, just the final result and the publication of it. Um, like an author and their publication factory, like their their publication suite, where it's like we require this from you. Yeah, this is your job now. You work for us. I think he also kind of set himself up up in that. Uh, well, he was he, a baby. He had no idea. No, what I'm saying, what I'm saying is, he was very fast in putting things out. Yeah, he painted very fast, and he had like he could finish like I don't know seven paintings in a week. And this kind of speed is the expectation he gave to the collectors yeah. and to the to uh, Anina as well. So they kind of developed this expectation that, oh, he can do things very fast. And now they expect him to deliver everything very fast. But you can't always be that fast. <laughs> and and the reason why he was fast is because everything had to, you know, he he was he was trying to survive. Yeah, of course. And it's, your brain... It's not a fault. When it's you're, just he... It's a thing you should never do at a job. 
never it's a give. thing you should never do to a child it's a thing you should never do at a job it's yeah. a never it's and and to be fair it's it's the, it's the mindset between stable and survival mode he was in survival mode for so long during yeah. his initial artistic creation. So he was using panic and desperation and hunger to create work, which yeah. when he becomes comfortable because he is selling and because he is, you know, supported, it's, it's a different, his, his brain sh- slowly shifts away from this idea of like, okay. I All can, right, I can slow down now, but no, you can't because you gotta do this. <laughs> because now you have people knocking on your door at hours of the night, being like, "Hey, um, we'd like three new paintings, please. Right we'll now. see them next week." Yes, yeah, <laughs> do it. Oh, and also, you're gonna get on a plane, and also, you're gonna go show at this show, and also, you're gonna go meet these people, and also, it's the it's the double edged sword of fame. Mm-hmm. It's the double edged sword of success. It's the double edged sword of being recognized. For your abilities. At some point, he, they flew him out to Italy. On the airplane hangar, they gave him this these like massive canvases that were already stretched and ready. Um, and he was given a few days to like produce fresh material for the second. Could you imagine? Uh, for this Could exhibition. You Could you imagine getting off a plane, yeah. jet lagged? And in front of you are these white canvases. Do work now. It's like, what? what? Like, Let me sleep. Excuse me? <laughs> First of all, you couldn't do that to me now. But at 21? At 21. Oh. Could you imagine? I just... Uh, he, he, oh. he is quoted as saying, They set it up for me so I'd have to make eight paintings in a week. I made them in this big warehouse. It was like a factory. A sick factory. End quote. And he was so frustrated at this that two months later, he snuck into Nose's basement and destroyed 10 of his canvases. And it's like, well, you, you have it in the notes here where it's like, it's, it's actually, it's pretty uh, evocative, right? Of, um, where along with drugs and the fame and the fans and the paranoia, money, was now this like huge force in his life yeah and he was able to to buy things and to spend things and to like to treat money like it also had no value because he had so much of it um he had where, no bank like, account i know i know where but it's crazy right because he just cash just so much cash and and also situations where like he would binge yeah. he was he was a certified like shopaholic yeah. binger <laughs> he was. where there's this one story of like him binging on expensive electronics and then when he was finally surrounded by it he broke down and cried yeah and i think so much of that is also like the anxiety of knowing that this is your life now and the paranoia that it brings, like, oh, are these people hanging out with me because they actually want to be around me? Or or is it because they want the fame and the Do they support line? me or are they using me? Yeah, exactly. And that's a valid concern. And that's what kind of a lot of people are concerned about when they start making either large amounts of money or big are, are becoming big in the industry. And he was becoming so big. He was slowly becoming, making his way up to earning like a million a year. Yeah. Uh, which at that time, it will be in today's money, probably like 10 million. So much fucking money. Yeah. Um, but like, you also have to understand that the double-edged sword of being forced to create as much work as he did also meant that he was creating more work. So by early 82, he's becoming more sophisticated in his materials and he's becoming more calculated with his work. You see this progression as he develops his style and he develops his techniques. Like by the night, by 84, he has developed his collaging technique so so succinctly that he could layer the canvas with color photocopies and he would paint over them and it's the same like silk screening technique from warhol that he like tries to emulate 
and copy, which you know what? Good for you. Good for you, Basquiat. <laughs> steal from that bastard. Yeah, he's stolen from everyone, so. <laughs> he stole from everyone, so steal from him. Yes. It's justified. <laughs> It's justifiable, but it also, in the weird, fun, twisted way of Warhol, it also really inspired Warhol and created this very unique and bizarre friendship between the two of them. Yeah. So he he got this new art dealer uh, after Anina. He the this guy called Bischofberger. Bruno. Uh, I've heard of Bischofberger. Yeah. Bruno. And Bruno kind of arranged uh, the meeting between Warhol and Basquiat, and it was kind of like a lunch in 1982. Uh, and Warhol recalls Basquiat kind of showing up and then leaving soon, and then coming back within two hours with a painting of them two still wet. <laughs> so he just just <laughs> painted and brought it back. And this the painting, dos cabezas. yes. Painting is Los Cabezas, and it kind of started this friendship between them. Um, everyone had something to say about the friendship. Oh, I can only imagine. The uh, not only is the age gap intense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> every time, every time people talk about Basquiat and Warhol, they're just like, yeah, da 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 da. And I'm over here like, what about the age gap? Yeah. What. A- <laughs> It's also weird because Warhol was kind of obsessed with Sean's dating life. Warhol was kind of obsessed, full stop, with uh, with Basquiat. Like Andy could not get enough of this boy. Yes, and it and it got to the point where even the media was very concerned, but like not concerned in the way that like, oh, are Warhol's intentions. To steal from Jean? Or or is he genuinely looking out for the safety and well-being of this boy? No. <laughs> they were like, Warhol, Warhol has new pet. Yeah. Mascot Basquiat appears on the scene without his master, Warhol. And it's like... Uh, they were both being criticized at this point. Of Warhol was being criticized for having him around because he was like quote, washed up, and he wanted, like, fresh blood to kind of uh, bump up his fame again. And Basquiat was uh, criticized that he was latching onto Andy for fame because Andy was more famous than him. So what? what, Where's the logic? (laughs) Where's the logic? It's Uh, like when Madonna dates a young man. What's the logic? (laughs) What's the deal? Is it that she can't get it or that she can only get it? What's the bit? Speaking of Madonna, Basquiat and uh, she, her, they dated. <laughs> they did date. Briefly, but they did date. Yeah, before Madonna was Madonna. Before she even let out her first that. album. It's it's part of the reason why I brought, I brought her up. But it's so, you know, he's got an eye for taste and he's got an eye for t- fame. And again, the, the era is just all of these people rubbing up against each other yeah. in, in more ways than one. <laughs> but but the relationship between Basquiat and Warhol did actually seem quite genuine when you look at like either accounts of their friends or even like diaries of Warhol. I think um, I think they had a very genuine friendship. I just think that the two of them were so Warhol more so unhinged. <laughs> Kind of like those codependent friendships, yeah. Where like they they wanted to inspire the other, and they wanted to like be inspired by the other, and were so fascinated by this concept of like, oh, well, you create art, and I create art, and I love the work you create, and you look up to me while I look up to you. Oh my god, I could talk to you for hours. That's eyelashes. I mean, I think they both had. Tiny bits of ulterior motives, and yes. what the critic says does, for at some uh, degree, ring true. But I think that through well, while that might have been like the beginning and why they started out, I think they did eventually develop a friendship that was real, and they actually I think it was cared always for real. each other. I just don't believe it was always healthy. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I think it was real. I just think that Basquiat knew what advantages being friends with Warhol would have. And Warhol knew the same about Basquiat. 
I'm not saying yeah. that it, it started out in a bad way. I'm just saying they both knew what they were getting out of this. And they did do a lot of collaborative works, and they had this one exhibition called Paintings in Tony uh, Shafrazi Gallery. And that exhibition was kind of what ended their friendship. Yeah. It didn't really end their friendship. It just caused this rift that was never repaired. Because critics started very vocally saying that Basquiat was the mascot of Warhol. And Basquiat took this very personally. And he distanced himself from Andy. And eventually, a few years after... Uh, Andy died in, in 1987, and Basquiat was distraught over this because they never got to make up for uh, or like make amends and kind of let him down to the spiral of like endorsing it, his heroin addiction. And uh, yeah, mm. this is a year before. But again, we come back to the fact that Basquiat is super young at this point. Yeah. Like he's just reacting for a lot of it, and and he's alright. She's twenty six. I <laughs> and and sometimes I like to self sabotage things always and <laughs> always and and part of it is you know he can only do so much and he can only be so much and he is just himself at the end of the day and he but he is. also has this grand idea of himself and so to be reduced to someone's mascot especially as a black artist especially as a black artist against a white man yeah like, ooh. <laughs> it, it's obviously complicated because obviously basquiat loves warhol but he then has to set off on his own to establish that he is different than andy and that how dare you compare the two of them yeah um, I will say that there's there's definitely a uh, this is also around the same time since he's making bank where he would paint in his Armani suits. Yes, <laughs> there's a really there's a really good portrait of him by canvas in a suit covered in paint, and it's just like, yep. damn. <laughs> but he was making bank. He was, you know, he was making bank, and I think the problem is that he just didn't have anyone who could like ground him. Yes. He didn't have a he didn't have a stabilizer. He didn't have a support system anymore. And this wasn't good because he was starting to become unhinged. The wheels that kept him together were starting to come apart. And obviously this is very dramatic, but this is also what happens like to a lot of young artists yeah. and in all fields, right? Uh anyone who starts making so much money and doesn't have somebody who can like at such a young bring. age. And that's such a young age. And he doesn't have his mother. And his father is essentially dead to him. <laughs> well, more like the um, other way around. Basically. But the more money you make, the more paranoid you become. And not only that, but you start to add the cocaine and the heroin usage. Again, stock standard for the time. But now he can afford his habit. Yeah. There's, um, like, you know, where he did so much cocaine that he was able to... Uh, blow a hole in his uh, in his septum. Yeah, crazy cocaine. Yeah, yeah. Well, fair, but still. Um, and you know, you still have the pressures of being a black man in a white world. It's still New York. You are still segregated by the neighborhood you're from. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of um, police brutality is also happening around this time. <laughs> and so much is happening around this time. Again, we're we're fighting against. A very a hyper conservative administration, and we're fighting up against a hyper conservative um, mainstream. So you can be celebrated by the same people who condemn you for being who you are yeah. and being expressive to yourself. And and remember your his his heritage, his legacy, his cultural background of Haitian, like of being Haitian and Puerto Rican. You're never, you're always going to be an islander and you're always going to be an other and you're always never going to be respected in the way your contemporaries will be. At this time, uh, this one aspiring black graffiti artist gets killed by police, Michael Stewart, yeah. for tagging on a train, I think. 
Basquiat kind of sees himself in this act and his art kind of shows all of this. His art is dominated by uh, black characters, uh, black men mostly. And he also paints like police and ambulance and these themes of death, uh, especially like at the end of his life. Um, yeah, which is kind of ironic, uh, and very sad. Um, he, uh, how do I say this? While this art world, this art market, essentially, has made him out to be the face of diversity, I guess. And this one speck of different person, other than all of this white, whiteness that you see behind him and he has so much first of all he has so much responsibility yeah and he has so much hinging on him kind of in the sense of if he derails then it's kind of reflective on his entire race which is usually how it goes uh sadly yeah in this industry and in the fame world essentially and he has so much pressure and he has no one to support him and he still sees like this he still portrays his his blackness and his his race in general in his art in a way of like he has this theme of heroes and, and saints and he uses that theme to uh, show off like artists, black artists, like especially jazz artists, like Charlie especially Parker, musicians. yeah, and uh, Dizzy, well, <laughs> that was hard to say, Dizzy Gillipsy. Um mm-hmm. and he tries to not back away, but he also has so much responsibility, and he's also being crushed by his addiction, and he's just so much is going on, and then you remember he's just. Like, 25. He's so young, and he is trying so hard to give himself some sort of identity. And then doubly so, you have people telling him that he needs to keep making art. And you have people who are just obsessed with him. Yeah. Because he is being fetishized to a degree. Exactly. That's exactly what I was trying to say. <laughs> no, no, no. But like, but, but legitimately, there's, yeah. there's so much of that. Even, even today, there's so even much of it. Today. Because when, when you think about Basquiat, you're like, oh my God. Oh my God. He's, he's the one. It's like, calm down. This is, this was half the problem. It's not that he was some genius, this rare creature. He just had so much. He had so many people supporting him to the point where he had to destroy himself. Because he no longer felt like he was himself. And that's part of like where the drugs came into it, right? You, you, you escape as often as you can so that you can like find a new reality. But like he's also then falling into himself and becoming so much of a recluse. Um, those last 18 months of his life, he, he essentially is reduced to a shell of himself yeah. because of all of this stress and all of this pressure. None of which he wanted. He just wanted to make art and be safe <laughs> and stable. He did want to be the best, though. He wanted to be the best. He did. But but he didn't but know, you know the cost that came with that. Yeah. Or didn't anticipate the toll that they would have. And And to be fair, he did try in late 86, him and his, then, you know, his girlfriend at the time, Jennifer Good, had successfully been able to run them through a methadone program yeah and help break addictions and you know they they especially uh but jean was trying so desperately to to get better and to be better and to to find himself again yeah but addiction is a tricky tricky thing to navigate yeah so at 27 years old he died of a heroin overdose essentially in the memory of jean keith herring created this painting called a pile of crowns for jean michel basquiat 
-hmm. And he wrote the obituary for Vogue for him. And he said, quote, He truly created a lifetime of works in 10 years. Greedily, we wonder what else he might have created. What masterpieces, what masterpieces we have been cheated out of by his death. But the fact is that he has created enough work to intrigue generations to come. Only now will people begin to understand the magnitude of his contribution. End quote. Gives me chills. It gives me chills. It gives me chills. It truly upsets and amazes and terrifies and ingratiates this, you know, this artist, this, this boy, this band who created so much i mean in his lifetime he produced over a thousand five hundred drawings and nearly 600 paintings and, and that's on top of the sculpture work and the mixed media and the the music and yeah, the poetry. film productions and the poems and just he was he did so much and he was focused on his immediate surroundings and and the street scene of the 1980s in new york you know revolve around the same the same things that they revolve around today racism inequality slavery identity culture yeah music and these these black historical figures and these musicians and these athletes that he that he celebrates and he created work for um and even the the fact that you know keith herring created a pile of crowns for Basquiat yeah. still also harkens back to the imagery that Basquiat was so dedicated in demonstrating. If if you think of Basquiat's work, you traditionally do think of that three-pointed crown. Yeah. At a certain point today, with the art market and the way his p paintings are being sold and everything, and his infamy, essentially, we tend to forget the person that he was yeah and just focus on this legend the myth of basquiat instead of the person who he was the fun-loving free-spirited creative ambitious amazing person that he was and while he does belong to the 20 or he is a part of the 27 club uh he it's very incorrect to to separate him from from his art and from this myth mythology that was built around him because then it it makes it seem like he he just was a being instead of uh, the the complicated the inspiring and intelligent and amazing person that he actually was he was so great yeah he deserves to be remembered for all he did and for what he produced as well, but what he put into his artworks as well. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's Basquiat for you. That's Basquiat. I mean, I thank you so much for doing this episode with me. Thank you too, Stephanie. You remember how we said this was going to be a short one? <laughs> <laughs> you were concerned about the length of the notes it's only five pages <laughs> you forget we have art history degrees we do you forget we have opinions that's right <laughs> oh man uh, no i'm just sad fair same fair. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any last words i think that success and fame is powerful and beautiful and i think it's as isolating as it is freeing and i think basquiat fell into a pool where he had to take care of himself once again yeah and you know it's it's a it's a scary world out there but i think art and inspiration and passion and drive is uh, a hunger that cannot be satisfied. And I think that creating stable 
environments for yourself the best you can is one of the most, one of the healthiest ways to go about a pursuit for a future. You can't do it by yourself. No. You shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to. And that if you are experiencing any sort of addiction or having suicidal thoughts, that there are many resources available, many that we'll have linked at the bottom of this episode. Yes. So that if you are interested in getting help, that you can get help or recommend help to those you think might need it. Indeed. For Somo, Samo. three-pointed crowns, and uh, a deep dive into 1980s New York, <laughs> as well as updates, newsletters, transcripts, blog posts, and more. Head on over to our website at bywrpod.com. You can also find us on Instagram at bywrpod. And on Twitter at bywrpod. You can also email us at bywrpod at gmail.com. And of course... You can check us out on Patreon. Our Patreon is the best way to support us if you like the work that we're doing here at BiWAP. Come say hi. <sighs> Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Reconsider a cocaine addiction. Don't separate artists from their art. Don't separate artists from your <sighs> And remember. When in doubt, titty out. Lovely. <laughs> ah! Thanks, guys. Thank you, Elena. Love you guys. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. We love you. Love you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>